Let's have a word of prayer then, and we will get started together. God, we thank you so much for the gift of long lives and faithfulness like you have given to Betty Sim. We thank you so much for the gift of our own lives and for your call to faithfulness that you issue to each of us. We thank you for your faithful church around the world that witnesses to your resurrection and your love, that demonstrates that resurrection life and love and service to others, that stands for the truth of the gospel in places full of darkness and hatred and fear and loneliness. Uh, your church every everywhere that studies your word and then lives by your word. May we be counted among them and may we be then strengthened for that work today as we study your scriptures, all for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the kingdom of which he is the king. Amen. Okay, let's dive into Luke again. We're going to look at only one chapter of Luke today, but it's a real long one. <laughs> so, um, let us start reading together and then we will do some work on these things. This is chapter 22 of the Gospel according to Luke, verses 1 through 6. Now the festival of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was near. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers of the temple police about how he might betray him to them. They were greatly pleased and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began to look for an opportunity to betray him to them when no crowd was present. Okay, this is, in a sense, the beginning of the end. Uh, we had the beginning of the beginning of the end as Jesus came into Jerusalem in the triumphant procession, the Palm Sunday procession. Lots of things have happened since then until now, but now the final stages actually begin. And we're told that the Passover is getting ready to start. We cannot overestimate the importance of the fact that it is the time of the Passover that during which Jesus is tried and executed. Because all the early church understood that what Jesus was doing was in the light of and informed by what God had done during the Passover. So if you are a Christian, you need to know what the Passover is all about. In order to be a good Christian, you need to first become a good Jew in some sense in the sense of knowing what the story of the Old Testament is. And the Passover, very quickly, all of you should know this, the Passover is the celebration of that historical event when God saves the plan that he proclaimed to Abraham to make of Abraham a great people. He saves the plan by saving the people and delivering them from Egyptian bondage. God sends Charlton Heston to Yule Brynner right? If you haven't seen the movie, watch it. God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And of course, there's a series of political interchanges and diplomatic exchange and sanctions and all kinds of things. That's what the plagues were. They were sanctions against Egypt. And then the final sanction comes as God destroys the firstborn sons of Egypt. As a demonstration of his power and his plan, 
to make sure that his plan for saving the whole world goes forward. Now, we could spend a lot of time on what the Passover actually is. We don't need to take that time today. But it is now the time of the Passover. Israel has gathered in Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people have come into this already large city to celebrate what for them is their Independence Day. And so Jesus has gathered at that same time. Now, we've already talked at length about the, 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 uh, the conflict between the religious leadership of Israel, not just the religious, but the political, economic, the leaders of the whole nation of Israel in every aspect uh, are out to get Jesus because Jesus is a threat to them. They are looking for a way to put Jesus to death. That is what Luke says here. And so Satan comes into Judas, Judas Iscariot. We could spend a lot of time on Judas Iscariot. We won't spend a ton of time today. If you were not here a week ago Sunday, uh, what would that have been? The 3rd of April, um, I preached about Judas Iscariot. And uh, so if you weren't here, go back to the church website and listen to that sermon to get a lot more detail about Judas and what was going on with Judas. Here we have Luke's uh, um, report that Satan came into Judas. Obviously, Judas did something that was evil that Satan had taken him over. Just as, as we're told in the Passover story uh, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God, God kept Pharaoh away from his will and from his love so that Pharaoh would be in a sense the foil uh, on which then Israel was released from bondage. Now Judas and what Judas is going to do is going to be the trigger event uh, in terms of what Jesus is going to do. So um, Judas goes to the chief priests to visit with them about how he's going to betray Jesus. And as I mentioned in the sermon a couple weeks ago, the betrayal itself is a fascinating thing. How did Judas betray Jesus? What was he betraying? Here, we are given to understand that Judas was telling the leaders when Jesus would be alone or nearly alone and therefore vulnerable to being captured and taken by a group of soldiers. Uh, the leaders didn't want to do it in broad daylight. They didn't want to do it in front of a huge crowd of people because that would compromise their position. They may not, might not be able to get away with it. But Judas, we know, comes in the middle of the, light to, in the, middle of the night to the Garden of Gethsemane. So Judas is preparing to betray Jesus. They pay him for it. He looks for an opportunity to betray Jesus. In the midst of this huge, joyful, politically tense moment of the celebration of the Passover. So if you want to talk more about Judas with me afterwards, let's do that. But let's keep on reading the story because there's so much more here to talk about. Verses 7 to 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover meal for us so that we may eat it. They asked him, where do you want us to make preparations for it? Listen, he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs already furnished. Make preparations for us there. So they went and found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. Okay. 
Then came the day of unleavened bread. Do you remember what the unleavened bread is all about? Why did the Jews use unleavened bread in the celebration of Passover? They didn't have time to let the dough rise because they were told to bug out in a hurry. They, they were given a brief window to, to get out of Dodge. And so instead of using uh, those beautiful loaves of white wonder bread all cut up into little cubes like we used to use for communion, instead they used holy bread, unleavened bread, tortillas basically. That's how I like to think of it, right? Unleavened bread. On that day of unleavened bread, the Passover lamb will be sacrificed. Do you remember what the Passover lamb is all about? the sacrificial lamb. God creates several series of sanctions against Egypt. The Nile turns to blood and frogs come raining out of the sky and several other things. And then finally, because uh, Pharaoh is so implacable and unchangeable, God says, I don't want to have to do this, but this is where we have to go. We're going to eliminate the firstborn sons of the nation of Egypt. But God's spirit needs to know which households are Egyptian and which are Hebrew. And so the Hebrew people are told to take the blood of a lamb. And what do they do with it? Remember, they smear it on the doorpost. And then this really creepy fog creeps in. I'm going back to, to Charlton and, and Yule here, right? This really creepy fog creeps in, representing the angel of death that God has sent. And it bypasses, it passes over. You remember the significance of that word? It passes over the houses of the, of the Hebrews, but it goes into the house of the Egyptians and the firstborn sons are killed. But a lamb has to die. In this case, many lambs had to die. Their blood had to be shed in order to save the Hebrew people. So that's where those names come from. They're significant. The whole experience is significant. It's significant for our Jewish cousins in faith in God, and of course becomes highly significant then for those who believe in the Christ. So Jesus is preparing to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. That would be a normal thing. They probably had done that for several years already in a row. The disciples would see nothing unusual about that. Jesus has made preparations ahead of time. There's a little bit of a Jean Le Carré spy novel going on here. Go into Jerusalem. Jesus won't go because it's in the middle of the day now. Things are getting a little bit dicey. Go into Jerusalem. You're going to see a guy carrying a jar of water. He's going to be looking for you. Go up to him and say, the teacher needs you. Not Jesus of Nazareth, but the teacher. That's your signal. That's your code language that it's the right guy and he will take you to the place, the upper room, a room upstairs where we're going to eat the Passover meal. So, continuing on the story, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That language probably is very familiar to you because some of it is the language that Presbyterian pastors are required to say in what we call the words of institution in the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving, communion. All of those are different names for the same thing. The words of institution. So, how many of you have been to a Seder meal, a Passover meal? Most of you have, that's great. We need to do another one sometime. So somebody make a note to me and remind me next year. We need to do a Seder meal. We've done them here before, a long time ago. The Passover meal that the Jews celebrate has several different kinds of food associated with it. Horseradish to remind people of the bitterness and, and the unleavened bread, several other things. Every single act within the Passover meal celebration has symbolic significance. Two of the things that have the most significance are the bread and the wine. The bread is, calls forth many associations for, for the Jews. Not only the unleavened bread that they, that they baked to take with them on their journey, but it also harkens back to the holy bread that God gave to the people in the wilderness when they were hungry, the manna. So bread is, 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 is really a fundamental food of pretty much every, every uh, culture, every group of people in, in most of history, really. Bread is, is the basic, the staple. Jesus often talks about bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You could, you could do a fascinating, maybe we should do that. Let's do a Bible study on bread sometime, and all of you bake loaves of bread and feed me copiously, and, and we'll, we'll have a great study, right? Um, so the bread of blessing, Jesus breaks the bread, and they remember the unleavened bread. They remember the bread, the food that God provides for them. He takes that bread and breaks it, and he he tells them a new meaning. He gives it a new significant symbolic meaning that they do not understand yet. Of course, we understand it as the body of Jesus that is broken. And then Jesus takes the third cup of wine. One of the reasons I like the, uh, the Seder celebration, if you do it correctly, there are four cups of wine in the meal, right? The, the, the third glass of wine is the glass of blessing. Uh, it's celebrating the, with gratitude God's gift of freedom given to the Hebrew slaves, God's creation of the, of the Hebrew nation. Jesus takes that cup of wine after supper. It's, it's, it's drunk after the meal is eaten. And he says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. And he pours out that cup. And of course, the disciples don't really understand what it is until later. We are told later on, that when Jesus sits down with the disciples, the resurrected Christ in his resurrected uh, heavenly body, if you will, that it's when they sit and share the meal together that they recognize him. There's a ton of significance in that. That's significant because that's what we still do. We believe as Protestants that Jesus gave us baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as a way of remembering him and not just creating a memory or going back to a memory bank in our minds, but creating in the sense of recreating and, and renewing and revisioning and re-experiencing 
his presence with us and his sacrifice for us that is the basis of our relationship with God. So we could talk forever about the significance of the Lord's Supper, but that's what Jesus does on the night before his arrest. So let's continue on. Verse 21, but see, the one, wait, hang on. One quick thing I left out. I saw this at the top of my notes. The Passover lamb, I mentioned the Passover lamb, right? The lamb that is killed and the blood spread, all right? The church will later on understand that Jesus is the new lamb of God. You've heard that before, right? Jesus, the lamb of God. Jesus is the lamb that's going to be sacrificed. Okay, let's keep reading now. But see, verse 21, the one who betrays me is with me and his hand is on the table. For the son of man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that one by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to ask one another which one of them it could be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you, just as my Father has conferred on me, a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers." And he said to him, Simon said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. He said to them, when I sent you out without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, no, not a thing. He said to them, but now the one who has a purse must take it and likewise a bag. And the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was counted among the lawless, and indeed what is written about me is being fulfilled. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. He replied, it is enough. Okay, there's a lot going on in here. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. We've talked about all the different kinds of reasons, even reasons that Judas might have thought were good and holy and helpful reasons to betray Jesus, but Jesus knows that that's coming. And Judas's hand is at the table with Jesus. Elsewhere, we're told that, that Judas actually takes the bread and the wine. He partakes in that last supper with Jesus. And there's significance in the fact that Jesus still served Judas, even though he knew what Judas was going to do to him. So Jesus says that he's going to be betrayed. And Again, the disciples don't completely understand what that means, but then they begin to have a conversation about it. Really? It, it, if you read behind the lines, one way to understand this is that Jesus simply says to the 12 there, one of you is going to fail me. One of you is not going to do a very good job. One of you is going to betray me. And they start asking, well, who in the world could that be? But then they transform it into a conversation not about how bad they might be, but about how good they might be. They start to argue among themselves who is the greatest among themselves. 
Now, this conversation happens between Jesus and the disciples at a different time in his ministry in others' gospels, okay? Luke is putting a bunch of things together here. Maybe they talked about this twice. I like to think they probably talked about it a lot because the 12 disciples seem to think themselves that Jesus was going to become the next president of Israel and he would need people to serve as his vice president and his secretary of defense and secretary of state and fill out the cabinet and all that good stuff and they were vying for position. They were very human in that. So even in this moment when Jesus is talking about dying, they are talking about the political power that they will get as a result of their association with Jesus. And then, of course, he reminds them that in the Gentile way, in the way of the world that does not have the true God as its God, there is a hierarchy set up. The hierarchy is try to get as high up as you can in that so that others serve you rather than you serve them. But the Jesus reminds them, I am the one who is serving you. I am the one who is serving you. And then he reminds them that some time back now, several months, perhaps even more than a year, Jesus had sent them out into the world two by two, he sent 70 of them to go preach about the kingdom and to heal people and to work with people. And that he reminds them that God had taken care of them during that time and that they had come back and everything was okay. And he also reminds them that he's setting up a new kingdom. Again, lots of what Jesus is saying to them, they don't totally understand until after the resurrection. Jesus is establishing a new kingdom that is based on serving other people. And if we enter that kingdom, then we will be sitting at a table with him in that kingdom. That's one of the best, clearest, and most scriptural visions that we have of what heaven is. Heaven is being at table in fellowship, in celebration with God and with all those who are the people of God. Lots of people wonder if there's golf and ice cream and dogs and all kinds of other things in heaven. I don't know about that. I know that heaven is a place where we are having one continuous, never-ending, perfectly wonderful party with God and with each other. Jesus gives us that vision here. Then Jesus says, you know, Simon, you're going to have problems with all of this. You are going to fail me. Peter doesn't think that he will do that. Peter says, I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to go to death with you. And then just a few hours later, of course, we know that Peter uh, denies Jesus. But Jesus is telling them all these things. He was giving them all these images, all these stories, all these visions of who and what they are that they will understand only later. And that they will begin to understand is, is, is what being in the kingdom of God is, is all about. So then we come to the end of this beginning of the end of the story, and they look up and say, here, it's, 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 it's coming. The end of is coming. And they say, Lord, here are two swords, two swords. Notice at the end of this passage, Jesus says, if you have a purse, you must take it, likewise a bag. If you don't have a sword, get a sword, take two swords with you. That's a confusing passage to a lot of people, right? We know later on that Peter takes a sword and cuts off the ear of the slave of the high priest trying to defend Jesus against the soldiers that are going to take him away. And here Jesus says, you need two swords. 
with you? Well, here's one of those places where you have to understand this one portion of Scripture, this one statement of Jesus, by everything else that Jesus has said and done in Scripture. And clearly, clearly, he was not recommending that the disciples arm themselves with military gear in order to protect themselves, because he had just told Peter, that's not the way we're going to do it. So what are the swords that Jesus is talking about? This is one of those places where I'm convinced, as most scholars are, uh, either that Jesus was wrong, that he was confused, uh, or that Luke was wrong about everything, but I'm convinced that Luke has a portion of the story, but the whole story's not there. And we have to fill in the back part of the story. I think the back part of the story is that we have to understand the way the, the term sword was used in the early church. The scriptures were often referred to as the sword of God, the, the instrument of exercising justice. In John's vision from Revelation, when Jesus comes riding out of the sky on a great white horse, his tongue is a two-edged sword. Is Jesus going to use that sword to cut up all of his enemies? No, the sword is the word of truth. It is the word of God. It is the healing, renewing, life-giving word of God that separates, that cuts out the bad stuff, that, that destroys evil, and that allows the good to flourish, that establishes the final triumph of good over all things. I think that's what Jesus meant as he was talking about the sword. He was saying to the disciples, you are going to have to become even more knowledgeable of and proficient in living by the truth of God that is expressed in scripture. Paul later refers to the scriptures as the sword, the sword of God. This is our sword. In, in Baptist churches a long time ago, maybe they still do this. I haven't been in a Baptist church for a long time. They used to have what they called sword drills. Did any of you have sword drills as a Baptist? Some of you, even some of you Presbyterians. Wow, that's really cool. A sword, you know what a sword drill is in the church? A sword drill is everybody sitting there with a Bible on their lap and the leader calls out a passage and the first one to find that passage wins a prize. That's a sword drill. It really helps you learn how to look stuff up in the Bible, right? We've kind of lost that because now you just type in the scripture into your computer and it up it pops instantly, right? Or you can look up the page numbers or whatever, but that's what sword drills are. So Jesus is telling the disciples, he's just said to them, the scripture is going to be fulfilled and you need to know what the scripture says about me and about God's kingdom and about the way of the world. So you guys are doing great. You get a gold star for today because you are sharpening your swords today. How about that? Maybe that ought to be the, the spring luncheon little thing that you give each other at the table, right? Instead of little cutesy notepad or some kind of foofy woman sort of thing. I, sorry, I'm betraying my prejudices here. Let's give little swords to everybody, right? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't you, no, Robin is nixing that idea. All right, I'm going to take this to a higher authority. I'm going to take... Wait, there is no higher authority. Never mind. Let me keep on going. Starting with verse 39 of chapter 22. Jesus came 
out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Okay, the Passover meal is eaten within the walls of the city of Jerusalem at this special place that Jesus has prepared. But now they leave Jerusalem. They go outside the walls, down the valley, and back up to the side of the hill to the Mount of Olives. Some of you have been to Israel. You've been to the Garden of Gethsemane, or what is traditionally understood as the Garden of Gethsemane, where all the olive groves are. That's where they're going to spend the night. It will be safer there. It will be quieter there. We've already read dozens of times that Jesus at night usually goes away from everybody or goes away with just a few of those who are closest to him to pray, to, to reconnect in a sense, to be rejuvenated in his relationship with the Father. That's one of the spiritual disciplines that we are given, the, the practice of going away somewhere, even if only in our own minds, going apart from everything of the world in order to engage with God. Jesus does that, the disciples go with him, and he invites them to pray with him. And I like to think that for a while, at least, the disciples did pray with Jesus, but then they all got tired and they fell asleep. And that's the way we are. That's the way all disciples are. I suppose, I've never tried it before, but I suppose uh, if I had the stamina, I could stand up here and preach till all of you fell asleep. Uh, at my age, I'd probably fall asleep before you do. Uh, because I get bored with my speaking before you do, believe it or not. But that's just the way it is, right? What does Jesus pray? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Where have we heard those words before? Thy will be done on, on earth as it is in heaven, right? right? This is one of the great examples of what prayer actually is. Prayer is partly saying to God, this is what I think, this is what I want, this is what I dream, this is what I need, if not for myself, then for someone else. But anything that we say is always conditioned by, God, what do you want? And ultimately, I want what you want. Prayer is partly speaking to God, but then it's listening to God about what God wants. It's, it's listening rather than talking. Our talking should be such that we speak the words that others have spoken about what God wants for us. That's why we pray according to the Psalms so often, and that's why Jesus gave us a model prayer by which to pray. Here, he takes his own advice. What a novel thing is that? He does what he tells us to do. 
Verses 43 and 44 are not contained in some of the earlier manuscripts, but they are in others. They're included here. An angel comes to Jesus and gives him strength. Clearly, we understand that God was with Jesus throughout all of this. We're told that Jesus prays so hard that great drops of blood come from out of his brow. And I've read some medical conversations about that. Some people that say, well, that's just a physical impossibility. Others that will say in times of huge stress that maybe your sweat would change color or maybe it's just a graphic way, a, a, a way that we would remember of talking about the intensity with which Jesus prayed. I know that when years and years and years ago, when I uh, took lessons in how to write things from people who were already accomplished writers, uh, someone had once said uh, that writing is very simple. You put a clean sheet of paper into the typewriter. This is how old this uh, was. Uh, and then you just sit and sweat great uh, drops of blood until something comes out, <laughs> right? And that is pretty much what writing is. Uh, and that's what praying is. It is such an intense effort to actually pray to God, and it becomes more intense as the stakes uh, rise. And of course, these are very, very high stakes indeed. So Jesus gets up from his praying, and the disciples are sleeping. Luke, Luke kind of gives them an out, and maybe this is true. They're sleeping because of grief, okay? They're not sleeping because they're wusses and they just got tired and fell asleep. They're sleeping because they're so anguished, okay? And that could, could well be. And Jesus says, get up. The time of trial, I hope, is going to be removed from you. So then verse 47, while Jesus was still speaking, suddenly a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? When those who were around him saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, should we strike with a sword? Then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear, but Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple police, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a bandit? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Okay, so Jesus is, is betrayed with a kiss. There's incredible pathos in that scene. What is a kiss supposed to be? An expression of love, a tender expression of love. One of the, one of the most tender things that we can possibly do, a holy kiss. And Judas turns it into something completely the opposite of that. And then of course the disciples' first impulse is to take up arms that is our first impulse when we are attacked, is to attack back. You can argue that the history of human warfare, with which we are so familiar, all comes from that human impulse that is in us to strike back when we are struck. Uh, the news last night, for some reason we were flipping channels last night and we came across uh, English language news originating from Japan that was talking about what was going on in India and India's hope that they could buy some new weapons from China. It was fascinating, all those different languages and cultures being tossed around. But the bottom line was 
that the Indian government was doing what every government wants to do, and that is get our hands on some weapons. And of course, we can go on and on about that, but that's just the human impulse. And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, no. This is partly where the, the stream of, of thought that we call Christian pacifism gets some of its power and some of its energy. If the guy that we say is the boss of our lives would not take up weapons to defend even himself, then what should we do? Now, that's a complicated conversation, to be sure, but we must take note of that in this scripture passage in particular. Jesus does not defend himself and says that's not the way we're going to do it. And then he turns the conversation on to those who have come after him. They have come with weapons, with soldiers, with all kinds of official people to take to this man who has never lifted up a hand against anybody. Why do you think they did that? Well, that's just the way that you did things. That's the way you did things because that's the way police powers and military powers operate. And of course, clearly the leadership is concerned uh, because they know about Jesus' miraculous power. They're worried that at some point he's going to turn that into destructive rather than constructive power. If you can take the five loaves and a couple of fish and do what you do with them, if you can take a lame person, a blind person, a person who has been uh, filled with all kinds of evil, if you can heal and take care of all of that stuff, then clearly you have some power that you can use against someone else. But that's not what Jesus does. Yet they're afraid of that. They're clearly afraid that Jesus is now in Jerusalem to assemble the forces together and overthrow all the leaders of the Jewish state as well as the Roman state. And so they've come to take him captive. And in a way, Jesus just sort of taunts them. He says, really, you have to come for me in the middle of the night and try to find me in this ridiculous circumstance? I've been with you every single day. I was right there where you were. Why didn't you come then? <laughs> There's a, I see a little bit of a human side of Jesus coming out there. I don't know. Jesus, forgive me if I'm wrong about that, but that is the way it is. Then he says, you know, here I am. This is your hour, the power of darkness. It is clear that there are times in human history, in individual human lives, as we see it here in Jesus' life, that the power of darkness has the upper hand, but only for a time, but only for a time. And there's another time coming. Verse 54, then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him in the firelight, stared at him and said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else on seeing him said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. Then about an hour later, still another kept insisting, Surely this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. At that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus began to mock him and beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? 
they kept heaping many other insults on him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, gathered together, and they brought him to their council. They said, If you are the Messiah, tell us. He replied, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I question you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. All of them asked, Are you then the Son of God? He said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Jesus is seized and taken to the palace of the high priest. The high priest arguably was in many ways just as powerful as the king of Israel. He lived in a true palace. That palace uh, is generally unaccepted to be, uh, have been discovered. They're excavating it still uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, a, a, big, huge residence. There's lots we could say about the palace and place there. Jesus was taken there. He was imprisoned there for a while, tortured there for a while. We're told the story about Peter, right? Peter follows along, and we talked about that a little bit this last Sunday. If you weren't here this past Sunday, again, go back to that sermon. You'll hear a little bit more. But three times Peter is identified as someone who was with Jesus, which would have been very dangerous to Peter, right? to be an associate, an ally of Jesus. And so we understand Peter's fear, Peter's desire to see what was going on but not to be associated with Jesus. Peter denies Jesus three times, the cock crows, and the rest of the story we'll have to tell later. People, there are some folks who are making a big deal out of the fact that the, woman, the women stayed with Jesus through all of this in some sense, and that's true. And there is some bravery associated with that. However, in that culture, women were considered to be unimportant. You didn't care what the women said or what they did. And so they had more freedom to be with Jesus, perhaps in some ways, than the men did. At any rate, Peter's denial of Jesus is a great uh, lesson for we who also would follow Jesus and make big promises, but then not fulfill those promises. At any rate, the rest of that story comes later on in Luke Jesus is, is insulted, he's whipped, he's mocked, he is taunted as being the king, the son of God, be, by people who don't believe it, but we know that he is. There's a great irony in that story. And then Jesus says, you know, from now on, I am seated at the right hand of the power of God. The son of man is at the right hand of the power of God, even in, this is a subtle point, but an extremely important point. Even in the midst of Jesus' absolute powerlessness, when he is a prisoner being abused and being led to his death in the worst possible way that, that the culture of that time had of killing people, even through all of that, there was manifested for us the power of God. We talk a lot about the idea that God is so powerful that we can do our very worst and God can respond to it in very mild and gentle and meek sorts of ways, but even the least power of God is vastly, infinitely more powerful than the most power of humanity. And that is expressed for us in the self-sacrifice of God as Jesus dies on the cross. 
So we use that understanding as we look at our own work in the world with the tiny little bit of power that we have, which seems absolutely insignificant. And yet, if it is the power of God, it is enough to defeat evil. There's a lot of sermons there that I don't have time to preach. But if you have some questions, muster up your courage and come talk to me afterwards. So, oh, you want to ask one quick question? Let's do it real fast. The question is, yeah, did Jesus in picking Judas know that he was picking someone who would betray him, right? On the one hand, we have to say yes, that, that if Jesus was God and, and part and parcel of this great plan of salvation, that Jesus knew from the very beginning who Judas was and what Judas would do and what would transpire. In some sense, Jesus needed Judas to do that, right, in order to create this great confrontation, just like Moses needed Pharaoh to be the SOB that he was so that God could demonstrate his great power and deliver the people. That's a conundrum. That almost seems as if we're saying that God sets up evil in order to be the foil uh, by which he then shows his good. And there's something to be said for that. On the other hand, though, there's always an on the other hand, and this is the great, the great sense in which our faith uh, is, is sometimes uh, very, very subtle, very shaded with different meanings uh, and, and, and very complex. On the other hand, did Pharaoh have a choice about what he would do with the Hebrew slaves? Did Judas have a choice? Was Judas merely a pawn in God's hands? And the scriptures clearly tell us that everyone is given a choice about whether or not they will follow God. So somewhere in the, the ambiguity of all of that and the complexity of all of that is the truth. The other side of Judas is that Judas was a human being. We could say that any of the disciples had the option or had the capacity within themselves to betray Jesus, uh, to try to force Jesus' hand or to say, no, Jesus really is a, a, you know, a deluded revolutionary or whatever all those reasons were. Um, of interest is that even though Jesus clearly had some inkling about what Judas was going to do, Jesus included Judas to the very end. And it wasn't Jesus who said to Judas, get out of here, you can't come back. Peter denied Jesus as well, right? Uh, Judas took himself out of a relationship with Jesus, but Peter did not. So it's great to ask all those questions. They highlight, in a sense, the, the complexity of our relationship with God. And, and our understanding that, that part of the lives we never live are not entirely our choice. We like to think of ourselves as completely free individual beings who make our own choices. And yet everything that we are is conditioned by who our parents were, what our genetic makeup is, what our background and history and understanding is. There is an influence in all of that. You look at the world very differently and you treat the world very differently depending on how, how you were born and, and everything that goes into who you are on one hand. On the other hand, you still are given a choice as to what you will do with the, with the, the hand that you've been dealt, so to speak, and how you will respond in any given situation. 
And so that's the, that simply belies the complexity of the world in which we live. And ultimately, as Christian people, we simply give that up to God and say, God, whatever, whatever, it, whatever was born into me, whatever has been given into my life, still I know that I am responsible for the decisions I make before you. Thank you for saving all of it. So that's a quickie answer, in a sense, to a very good question. Jesus right. said he didn't know when the end of the world was going to come. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking here, listening to all of this, is it possible that when Jesus chose Judas as one of his disciples, he might not have known yet. He, might, he knew that someone was going to betray him, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until Satan entered Judas. And Jesus, knowing Satan's work, maybe then he realized that it was Judas. That's just something that kind of... And then when Judas realized what his true betrayal was, it wasn't what, I don't think it was what he really had intended, but how Satan had changed things around. And so that's why Judas chose to kill himself. And I'd like to believe that before Judas did kill himself, that he repented and asked God's forgiveness. And God did forgive him because Judas did the assigned task, which he needed to do yeah. for our salvation. Yeah, yeah. Great commentary on all that. I, and and it's possible G that Jesus did not know the particulars of things. And on the human side of Jesus, you know, the, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, God, I don't want to do this. If there's a way, even at this late hour, that we can change the plan, let's do it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a very human side of Jesus in that, that we need to understand and appreciate. Uh, did Jesus know exactly how everything was going to go? As you say, in foretelling the end of the world, Jesus said, I don't know. That didn't seem to concern Jesus, though. He said, what I know is who is at the end of history and the way it's all going to turn out, how and when is insignificant, right? Absolutely. And the same thing with Judas. There are two stories of the end of Judas. One is he goes and hangs himself. The other is he goes and, and, and says to the, to the folks who have given them the 30 pieces of silver, I shouldn't have done this, take the money back, right? And, and then, then he, he falls and, and he dies. So there, there is some tradition that Judas also repented. Uh, and as I pointed out in the sermon, if Judas doesn't get to be saved, then I don't either. So um, the rest of you can make your decision about that, but that's my decision about that. Okay, we be you all are so incredibly forgiving and patient. This is amazing. This is my last time with you in this study. Next week, Dr. Pressa will be leading you through the study. And the week after that, when we finish the Gospel according to Luke, will be our own Holly Crawford, who's a great Bible teacher. So um, very different from me, which will be very refreshing for you. So God bless you all. Go live a good life. Amen. <laughs>